0: Thank you so much, Martin, for taking, giving me the opportunity to have your time today, this evening here in lovely Berlin. Uh, I'm so excited to have you as a former colleague. And also I really um, enjoyed our conversations, both at work, outside work. And I really think, it would be really good personally for me to get your story out. Uh, I think we have spent some time talking about, you know, topics and issues at work, but I never got the chance personally for myself to really know the, as I call it, the origin story. You know, Uh, how did you all start? How did you get into the work you are doing? What brought you here? And I think uh, that kind of aligns with what we are going to talk about in our podcast today, the In Your Shoes podcast. So I'm super excited. Thank you so much for giving me your time.
1: Thanks, much for having me. So I'm super excited about talking to you. So I'm super interested in what's happening now.
0: Brilliant. So, Martin, for people who may not know, uh, give us a little bit about yourself, uh, especially... Your journey who are you where are you coming from uh, a little bit about your background so that people get familiar to the to the person as a guest on my show today
1: mm-hmm. all right good um yeah so i'm martin um and i'm currently uh, an engineering manager at zalando so i work with zalando for three years now so it's actually today is, is my my third anniversary wow so I, like three years ago first of september um yeah, that's what i do now right um, but but maybe i can start in the beginning um so my, my journey kind of started like 20 18 years ago um so and i you will see this through throughout my journey um that things kind of just happen so, so i never planned things actually um at like like 20 years ago um like like everyone else or 21 years ago even um i had to get started with something uh, which is called a job right so i had to learn something uh, and I had no idea what to do. Um, but I played a lot with computers and then actually it was was very easy to say, okay, let's do something with computers. Um, and actually back in the days, we had the, the new computer science apprenticeships in Germany. So this is like people kind of um, at the at the beginning of, of 2000 and then a bit before that, um, people were really in the need of um, computer experts um, and so they they brought up so the government brought up some new series of jobs, and um, one was called Fachinformatiker für Systemintegration, mm-hmm. which I'm pretty sure that this sounds like a very long German <laughs> word. Um, so this is like like a, like a um, educated expert for um, for com- computer stuff. So it's it's not not a study but an apprenticeship. And I said okay, let's let's go for this. Um, And I chose the part of a system integrator. So so I basically learned um, the basics of computer sciences, but also how to install big networks. So so I I was the guy who would have been the guy who installed, so the hardware and the network cables and and the routers and all this stuff. Um, Yeah, it was was nice, So so I I really loved this, right? So there was a bit of coding, a bit of hardware, getting into protocols, all this stuff and then actually um in 2003 when i finished i started as an engineer or developer at siemens um so so back in the days um they had um still the what is called the, the umts development so the umts was actually um not out in the market there so actually we developed it so everyone was talking about 3g but 3g was not was was not really out there um And we kind of, oh no, so 3D was out there. um, We developed um, the base stations and I started in the integration test and was kind of a developer for the test tracking tool there. Um, There was a proprietary software language that that I used there to customize the tool and this this was how it started. So I got a lot of responsibility in the beginning um, and I loved it. So it was like, I really loved coding, working in a very small team. But then actually I worked together with with a a working student who later became a very close friend of mine. And he was much more experienced than me. This was like, he was was way beyond I was. And I kind of felt jealous, to be honest. Um, And I said, I want to be like him. And and then actually I decided that I want to study. So so I worked for one year at Siemens, full-time as an engineer. Then I had to like to become a working student there. So in the same department. And I started um, studying computer science. And yeah, this took like five years, kind of. Um, and I finished quite well. So, so I, I was good in this because I really loved this. So, so I went deep in, into all the things, took a lot of extra courses. And then after after I finished this, I, I again did not know what to do. right? So, so I thought, OK, now i educated. Maybe I can go for a job or not. Um, and I was in touch with a professor. and. I decided then to try to do a PhD, a PhD. So I went to the Charité, which is a um, universal hospital in Berlin, and started three years to study um, on a PhD, try to make a PhD. And it was, again, super interesting. This was something that I, I never did before because um, this was in the realm of virtual microscopy. And I had no idea about medicine, virtual microscopy, and and all this stuff before. Sounds heavy. <laughs>
0: Sounds very heavy. Like, what is it?
1: Um, yeah, watching microscopy is like it's a super interesting thing, um, we were in the, in, the, in the department of digital pathology and usually what the pathologist is doing is 90% of their job they check like small slides um, and check if, if the person has cancer or not. So this is the main thing that they do, and they permanently set above the hardware microscope, scroll through this, move this slide, um, back and forth and so on, and that's a hard job, right? And they really have to look at this. And we kind of try to support them digitally. Um, and there are big scanners out there, so they're like, I, I don't know, so like one meter multiplied with 50 centimeters, so it's so like a big, huge machine, um, and they can kind of scan all the, all the um, specimens and per, per slide, actually, they generate data like 40 gigabytes.
0: Fantastic.
1: And we kind of had to compress this or um, decompress the stuff and uh, build a version of microscopy. And then uh, we did a lot of um, analyzing the pictures, the areas. So it was like mass analyzing them, trying to find some, some spots in the specimen. And then just point the pathologist to the, to the specific areas and to tell them, hey, look at these, please. Um, it could be like there is an issue there. So super interesting, super nice. Um, Yeah, I learned a lot. So this was like like super interesting. Um, And interestingly, without knowing, these were actually the first steps into leadership that I did. Um, Because I kind of worked together with people there. We had a lot of of working students. And without knowing what mentoring is and so on, I, I kind of mentored them. So I sat together with them. Um, wanted to make them better, told them how to develop some things, um, Listen to them, their problems, and so on. So, so it was kind of natural for me to work with them. But retrospectively, I would say these were the first steps where I kind of started to lead people.
0: Very interesting. So I don't want to interrupt your flow, uh, but did I get it right that when you started thinking about getting a PhD, that's the time that you also got the opportunity to mentor working students. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, kind of. So we were a small project, right? So this was like like a founder project, um, and we got the, the budget for three years. Um, and of course, we we also hired working students in our area to to help. So, so we just gave gave them a, um, a job and um, to help us developing some algorithms um, and. Yeah, this was like, I think it was not even intended that I mentored them, I just did it naturally, because my intention was that I have to give something back. So, I mean, I was not super old there, but I learned a lot of things. People supported me throughout my career, so that I had a luck to, to be a working student while I was studying and so on. And I thought I have to give something back. And this, this was actually um, the intention where I sit together with them and um, taught them things and so on. So, it was was not planned that I mentor. I, I just kind of wanted to.
0: right. right. I really want to explore this part about, you know, you have to give something back a little later in our journey today, but I want you to carry on. So you went for your PhD and you were basically working on this project with working students, getting a chance to mentor them. What happened next?
1: Yeah, I did for three years, and then I realized that I won't make my PhD, um, so there were, I did a lot of things, research, even published some things, but but I realized it would take even three more years to get a PhD, and it, just to be honest, the, the PhD was just for my ego, so I wanted to have something in my ID card, which says Dr. Martin fluger because I thought, I thought this, this sounds super nice. Um, but then, then I kind of realized it's not worth, like, spending uh, six years into this, by right? just having this in the ID card. And I said, okay, I, I want to go to the industry. Um, and I had the chance to, to start in a, some sort of consulting company, um, which already had a job at Immobilien Scout. And, and Immobilien Scout is in, in, Euro, in Berlin, uh, sorry, sorry, Germany, the, the market leader for real estate software. Um, and I started there, and I kind of was good. I think so, because um, they made me an offer um, directly to work for them. And then I kind of switched after eight months and became um, a software engineer, a senior engineer at ImmuScout. And this, this was also a super nice time. So I stayed in this company for six years, um, but I had a lot of interesting things to do. So my kind of kind of the career changed there. Um, so first started to work for real estate software that was called the Market Manager. Um, Super nice experience as we were a very small team. So we had two engineers, um, three product owners. Uh, I think you can imagine this is quite challenging. Um, so, so we had a lot of things to do.
0: Interesting. So three product owners and two engineers.
1: Yes, yeah, so, so three product people um, who kind of worked together. So, so we were, were a super small team. And yeah, we, we had a lot of things to do there. And. Yeah, it was nice, um, So it was like, like a small family um, working on a project um, that was kind of, there were competitors out on the market with like um, 20, 30 engineers on, or, or people working on this topic and we were a very small team, but kind of very successful in the market then. Um, these were actually the first times when I got in touch with HR with technology, so we, we kind of tried out Scrum. Um <laughs> and also to be honest uh, i think we kind of failed scrum um or at least i've also failed um, um in scrum especially in estimation so it was like like starting with all this agile stuff and the, the estimations looking backwards i was so bad in estimating things um so I made made the standard mistakes um but this is of course a learning and then actually um we bought one of our competitors. So, UnoScout um, a software that was a bit more established in the market than us. And then actually I had the opportunity to migrate all the consumers um, from our platform to theirs, which meant that I kind of stopped software engineering um, to be a full-time job or my main job and I became some sort of project manager and was steering for kind of one and a half years um, this migration project. This was again, never planned, but also a very interesting and learning intensive part as we were a small team um, we were working together with the other company that we acquired and um, we are doing we did marketing we were calling people um, we tried to understand if they had problems in the migration made surveys so there was a lot of things um, that, that we had to do there and and i learned a lot of things and then after that time, so after the project was finished, again, I was in a situation where I thought, okay, what can I do next? And I thought about leaving the company, trying to something, try, try to do something different or becoming something in the company. And I got the offer to become a lead engineer or an engineering manager. And then I said, hmm, okay, I never thought about leading people, but this is a nice opportunity. And... Back in the days, I was super naive and thought, hey, maybe I can try out leading people and continue developing, um, which definitely did not work. Um, I think, think this is the problem, right? So, so that every young lead runs into, or, or at least the most that I know, they, they think they can still code and lead people. Um, and I was the same. And actually, I started to work on a team. And yeah, that, that's it. So after. Um, kind of three years being an engineering lead I wanted to change the the, the company and then I went to Salando and stayed on this engineering manager thing.
0: What an interesting journey. Thanks. So I think uh, the really interesting aspects that I would love to touch upon uh, in this part of our conversation uh, first coming back to your time in mentoring and I really like this point about having to give something back uh if you can remember like what led you to think that you wanted to mentor without calling it an official mentoring per se what motivated you as you said giving back giving something back what is the source of that was it about your previous experiences or you found that there was a need for these working students to get some support, but they were not getting, or anything beyond this?
1: Uh, yeah, I would say it was kind of a mixture. Um, so maybe also some something intrinsic. Um, but, but if I think about it, maybe also my, my first lead at, at Siemens, um, when I worked there, I also had a, had a lot of influence on this. Um, because so in, in the last 18 years, I had a lot of leads. I think I had about 18, 18 direct leads. Um, good and bad and and mediocre but I I really had the luck and I'm really happy with this that that my first lead at Siemens was was a very nice guy and he kind of treated me like everyone else although I was just a working student um, he treated me like a full-time employee and when I had questions he was always there he was teaching me things Um, so he was always there for me so so I kind of felt like a full-time employee full-time member of the team and it I think this influenced me, and this I think this kind of led me to the to the to the idea that I also have to give something back because he gave something to me. So he kind of brought me into this working world, um, supported me all the time, and I wanted to give the same support back to the people.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I think you saw something that you received without expecting, I would say, and. It was, an. Ob- I mean, you made a choice that you want to give this back, you want to move this on, like, you know, getting help and then passing on the help to others. I want to touch upon mentoring in general. Like today, when people reach out to you, um, as we were discussing before the call, uh, to you to become a mentor, uh, how do you go about that? How do you approach mentoring? Uh, with someone new who says that you know what martin i i want to get mentored i want you to see as my mentor what is your approach to mentorship in general
1: yeah i think like anything else that i do there is no real planned approach so for me this is like um, if someone comes and says hey i, I can you mentor me can you support me in my career or in my concerns or question i just say hey okay let's let's set out a call um and then usually I start to listen. So, so when, when I start a conversation or a mentoring conversation, um, I would like to have continuous conversations, so like like weekly or, or bi-weekly. Be um, but beyond this, there there is no real approach. So I I just talk to to the other one, and listen to the other one, because I think this. So I think it doesn't need any any real structure here, right? So there, if you if you want to learn something, there's always something to discuss. There's always a problem to discuss or something interesting to share. So uh, I just I just listen, talk, and and give some ideas. So that's basically it.
0: Hmm. From your point of view, Martin, like uh, having obviously being mentored and also act, acting as a mentor as well, have you seen where? the mentorship relationship has not gone well in your experience where perhaps the aspect about mentoring was not structured in such a way where either the mentor or mentee did not really enjoy the process. Has it been an experience for you?
1: Not yet, I would say. Um, So no, but maybe maybe not structuring this is is the key to, to make it kind of successful. Because if you don't create a structure, you don't create any expectations to this. If you just say, okay, we have a weekly or bi weekly session where we talk about problems, ideas, then you're some sort of open format. Um, but when I have this mentoring discussion, or I'm not sure if I'm, I really like this word mentoring because I can also learn from the mentee, right? So, so it can also be that the mentee is teaching me something um, while we talk about something. So maybe I just give a hint and then I just question my hint, or I'm challenged back. So that's why I like more this this eye to eye conversation instead of saying I'm the mentor, you are the mentee. This often sounds to me like I'm the one who knows it and you have to learn. But I think that's not, that's not right. So that's not true.
0: That's so true, uh, Martin. I think from my experience, I've also seen people who sometimes are unaware that you know mentoring can help them, or if mentoring is really possible or something that they could leverage. What do you say to people who are perhaps not aware of mentoring as a process to develop themselves in terms of how can they know they perhaps need a mentor and really reaching out to mentor in general?
1: Mm -hmm. I would just tell them, try it out, try try to find a mentor. Um, I think, Having someone where you say, okay, I, I really think this this person can teach me something, um, gives you so much confidence in, in your learning process. Um, so so I could really um, encourage those people just just to try it out, just to just to find someone where they say, okay, this could be could be a nice person, um, could be the right person, where where we have some sort of harmony, um, and then just try it out.
0: People, when they see the whole process of mentoring they feel oh yeah i need to now definitely reach out to a mentor but what should i talk about like what can i ask what can i what can i not ask has it happened to you as you had experience mentoring people where perhaps the mentee was really unaware of you know how do they leverage this relationship and get uh, perhaps the the benefits that they would like to get out of it
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, not not with the people I mentored yet, but but I can imagine that they maybe need some some sort of um, um, steering through the process. Um, but I think this is also based on on then the relationship. I mean, sometimes sometimes you need to steer the people to the right direction, right? So. so Maybe one step back um, to to express what I mean. If if I have my directs, um, so so I I'm a leading a team, of course. I mean this is also some sort of a mentor-mentee relationship, right? And there they sometimes are not aware what they can leverage from 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 a lead, right? So this is I think also that I that I kind of understood um, at one time that that your lead can really help you because often the lead is more experienced than you are, not not in all all, um, not on all aspects, but more or less in the process to get developed, right? So when we look to to a certain company, for example, and you you want to get promoted, and there are often processes around, and your lead can really guide you through this process, um, but most likely they have more experience in this process as they already guided other people through this. Um, And this is what I saw in people, um, including myself, and it's not always clear from the beginning. So I think this is this is a learning that, that people sometimes have to have.
0: Yeah, I totally agree with you. And I think this is very interesting point that you mentioned about, I think there's a trust is a key word here, right? So you are, uh, especially if you have, if you're a lead or a leader and you have already directs, I think uh, it's already an opportunity for that to become a mentor-mentee relationship. Uh, because there's a scope of learning and I also really liked the way you framed it like as a mentor there's also opportunity for you to learn from the person you are mentoring and yeah sometimes mentoring can be you know misrepresented as like oh you know everything and now you're telling me what to do kind of uh, mindset I want to check with you I think you mentioned about this you know directs uh, and you have obviously people that you're leading, and also this mentor-mentee relationship. I wanted to understand from you for how you do you use, what do you recommend for leaders like yourselves, who perhaps uh, either did not explore mentoring others, and what can they do, according to your experience, to really become a better mentor.
1: <laughs> um, yeah, I think the most important thing to become a better mentor is to listen. Right? So this is like, sometimes sometimes as a mentor, you tend to be uh, like too too audible. So, so yet you talk too much, right? So you listen to, to your mentee and you already develop some idea and strategy in your mind and then you just start Start shooting at them and tell them, let's do this and that. And I think that's the wrong way. I think to become a better mentor or a coach, um, the best thing that you can do is listening. And I recently um, phrased this this, um, this quote from the Dalai Lama in the presentation. And he said, um, when you talk, you just repeat what you already know but when you listen you have the chance to learn something new and i think this this is a very important thing right so my my advice to to becoming a better mentor is just listen more
0: yeah i think that's a very powerful powerful representation of the idea on listening also you know i have also been in the on the side where sometimes i'm so excited about something that i really want to talk about it and i don't listen <laughs> So, I think there is a, a sense of restraint and uh, really waiting for other person to pause so that they feel that they have a room available to navigate instead of, you know, confined to a space. and that's what happens when you're always talking you are reducing the room space for them. It's like being in a physical room with the other person. And uh, this is a metaphor I picked up uh, either, I think I reading or some talking to someone on my podcast about considering a metaphor around being in a hotel room with someone. And if you are talking a lot, as perhaps a mentor, you are reducing the space they have for themselves in that room. And at a certain point of time, they feel claustrophobic. <laughs> so yeah. Yeah. I think that comes to my mind when you talked about, you know, being a good listener.
1: That's a very good comparison. And I think also you, you kind of steal the time from the mentee, right? So, so the mentee wants some support there. And then when you talk, they kind of, they they kind of, as you said, right? They don't have a room, and even I think this was a very good thing that you said: make longer breaks and wait, because people then kind of look to you and expect you to say something. But if you just stay silent, then I mean, usually people like they they don't like, um, they don't like the silence, so they will continue, and you get get more out of the people, right? So this is like. Of course, you you feel kind of the rush to jump in and say something, but if you just stay silent and let them continue or maybe sort their thoughts, this can have a much more impact in, in, than than you jumping in.
0: That is so so true. It reminds me of my time uh, when I was uh, the same same organization where you are. Uh, I often was told that you know people a lot of it, including me. I think we, we we get afraid of being silent. When someone asks anything, oh, we need to respond quickly, right? We don't want to take our time to respond. Sometimes feels like, oh, if I take too much time to respond, it would mean I don't know that, or I haven't planned, or I'm not prepared. And I got a really good feedback from someone there uh, that using silence, as your as your weapon or in a in a positive way as your powerful instrument. So often when I got that feedback from that person, I tried leveraging that feedback with other people I spoke to, where I when they finished a sentence, I did not say anything. Mm-hmm. It was just odd.
1: Initially. <laughs> yeah, this, this this is right. This, is, uh, this just remembers me of of um, a course once I uh, once took about negotiations, um, and they just talked, uh, told us keep silent. And then we made some some sort of um, experiments, trainings, and then I just was uh, was watching two groups. Um, they were recorded, and the two groups had a job to negotiate about something, right? So they got from the trainer, and one group got the one goal, the other got the other one goal. And in this group, in one group, there was a seller. So he was really trained on this. <clears throat> and we as the audience, we knew which goal both parties had. And they started to negotiate. So we went back and forth. And at one point, the sellers stopped saying anything. So it was just sitting there and just stopped saying anything. And the other party, they couldn't stand the silence. And then just made another offer. And then made it even better. So they gave, gave the, the seller party more and more. it it was super surprised because the the seller was already in point where he got everything that he wanted. So he already achieved the goal, but just by staying silent, the other side put more on this. Um, so yeah, this silence is a super powerful, I, I will not say weapon, but I would say maybe, maybe instrument.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think an instrument is the right word for it. And I think used in the right way, obviously you can have a positive impact. And sometimes, you know, in a negative scenario, in a scenario where you have either offended someone, silence can mean a lot. <laughs> in mm-hmm. a relationship, for example, silence can mean a lot. Uh, it either means you screwed up <laughs> or, you know, it's, uh, there's something more to come at a later point in time.
1: Yeah, definitely. So, so, so. I think it's, it's interesting, right? So silence sends a strong message. I think
0: you can say. I want to steer us away a little bit. I obviously mentoring is such an interesting topic and I, I think we can spend hours talking about our experiences on mentoring. I want to steer a little bit on the part around your experience with, you know, you tried agile failed with estimates. Tell us a little bit about that experience of yourself when you tried agile. What was, what was going on there? How did you react or how do you realize that you failed?
1: yeah <laughs> that's a very good one um so yeah when, when i remember this agile there um i remember one one feature that i had to develop um so so i was developing a middleware um and we, we had a lot of, of emails there so it was about like um emails that were provided that were displayed and so on and our services were not able to handle this right in time because we kind of used this pop method and IMAP and so on. And this, this took like, like, like ages. So actually more or less the feature was not usable. So I had the idea to implement some sort of cache. I said, okay, this is super easy. Um, so I estimated this for, I think, like two sprints. Um, but it didn't went into the code. So I just had a code in, in my mind, right? And the estimation that I did there was like, like a gut feeling. Um, which it's okay for estimation, but in this case, it was a super wrong gut feeling. And then, yeah, I failed the first sprint, and I said, okay, um, I think it, I have to implement this and that and continue on this. Um, and then I estimated, okay, let's let's do it in the next sprint. So I'm pretty sure I will achieve this. And then while I developed some more things popped up, and then I decided, okay, maybe I can implement a bit more and change it. And it I think it took like eight eight sprints. Until I finished this feature, I was always postponing this and never was able to come to an end. Um, so, so this is what I mean. Um, I meant when when I said I really failed there, and I think my estimations were, I'm sure that they were too much based on my gut feeling without checking the code. Um, so then, then I kind of sometimes failed. So this is the the bad experience. Um, and I mean, bad experience of things where you can really learn from, right? So then i really learn from this. And when when I work together with my team and we try to make the estimations, I think the key to a good estimation is to cut things into pieces, right? So try to bring your tickets to a very small number. Um, so one of the teams that I lead they they are super mature already in estimating things. And we, so we use this, this magic estimation planning poker thing So with the Fibonacci grid, and we kind of strive to just have three, five or eight stories in the sprint and are even at the point where we say, okay, let's maybe even try to cut the eight story points into smaller chunks. So before that, we had 13. um, And I think that's also a good sign for a team if they just have very small um, stories in the sprint, because this kind of makes you more flexible and, of course, reduces um, the chance that you estimate wrongly.
0: I think uh, this is a very interesting point. A lot of people, I think, it's still, I think this will be universal. I think estimation is never easy, irrespective of how many years you have been doing that, because every problem seems like a new problem, and also it 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 never becomes easy across the type of companies and size of companies I have worked with and it's interesting to you know obviously the some of the basics and foundations uh, can still be leveraged the one that you said you know try to break it down into its smallest parts as possible where you can be more deterministic on on how much complexity and effort that would take um but i think there's a inherent nature of estimate it's an estimate there is a there is a still a essence of gut in that and i and i feel it's less i think it's also more art than science sometimes to really come up with right estimates
1: yeah definitely but i think you can also reduce the risk by using the combined brain power of all the people in the room uh, so this is like if if one is estimating and a playing poker with another number then don't ignore this, right? So, so I saw teams where they said, uh, okay, let's try to convince this person. The think you should not do. You should really listen to them and let them explain why they think they have another estimate than maybe the rest of the group. And I often saw that they bring up things that people did not consider. So even if they estimate higher and then maybe, maybe the rest of the team may forgot about some very important thing or they estimate lower um, and then maybe it turns out that the topic is not that complex because can be easily solved by a very, very small implementation, for example. So I think this combined brain power and bringing the team to a point where they really understand each other and the code, um, this is a very important thing.
0: Absolutely. The last part of our, I think I'm just still breaking down your experience, your journey. So, you know, we have lots to talk about, but the last part I really picked up, uh, which is very prominently, uh, I think it's very prominent, and we can spend also some time there. You said when you tried leading teams, you were hoping, and I think everybody does that, even me at a certain point of time in my career, that, you know, yeah, I can do both. I can write code all the time, also balance, you know, leadership responsibilities, and somehow I can be the super person who can do everything. How was that realization for you that you know this is this is not not optimum and it will lead to failure? Share us, share us with us a little bit about that experience.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's simple. It was hard. <laughs> I I didn't want to continue coding because I wanted to be the superstar or or someone who can do everything. Uh, I was just naive, so I thought I can do this, and I, I loved coding. I still love it. Unfortunately, I don't have that much time to do it. Um, I just wanted to kin- continue what what I loved and thought I can learn something new, so like leading people, and maybe I had some luck there because when I took over my first team, um, this was a team that consisted of an architect, a lead engineer, and the rest were senior engineers. Um, and I was just just a senior from another team, and I, I didn't even dare to go into the team and tell them what to do. Right? So I mean, they were in their domain, even more experienced than than I. Um, I, I partially coded some things, but, but not that much. And maybe this was my luck um, that, that I actually was kind of forced out the coding, and I had to concentrate more on the leading. Um, but it took me, I would say, like five years, um, five years to not regret that I can't code anymore. So this was for me one of the hardest learnings that I had in my career, and still I miss it from from time to time. So, so in my team, so in one of my teams. I kind of do sometimes very, very small frontend things, so I'm not a frontend engineer, usually I'm a backend guy. Um, but I can do this from time to time it, It's not the best code that I code that I produce, of course not and um, but it feels so good. I can tell you this is like when when you kind of commit something or you try something out and then it it, it it works and you, you see this on the screen. There's still something in my chest which says hey i I want to code more but I doubt that this is possible, right? So you can either concentrate on being good at leading people or an expert in coding. So I think a mixture of this is, I think more or less not possible.
0: I had also the same impressions. And I think um, when I was joining the industry and also later on when I got the opportunity to lead, I was thinking, yes, you know, I can somehow make it. And when I could not do that, when I could not, really contribute in terms of writing code. I felt almost like I was feeling, um, of, you know, I'm not being the person contributing or really on the ground instead of just talking to people. And it felt very odd initially because I was always measuring the outcome in terms of, you know, functionalities you build, uh, being able to pair with other engineers and that not doing that as your full-time job really felt like questioning myself okay is this the right thing like what value am i adding by not writing code and doing this and that was very initially weird time for myself uh and i obviously had uh, took over some time to really realize oh yeah there is the mistake i was doing and there is impact that i create by being more effective in being the leader that people need and deserve and not to try to do everything together and be successful at the same time.
1: Yeah, yeah exactly same story here. Um, so, so, so as I said, right, I think it took me five years where I questioned myself, was it the right decision? Um, was was this a good idea to, to start leading? And I think what, what also kind of supported me in this thoughts is that leading people I think you need to get really confident in leading people. Right? So when you're an engineer, it's easy. You, you write something, you have the experience, you know the tooling, um, you write the test, and then you can actually prove that it works or not. But when you're a leader, there is not such a test, right? So this is like you are out in the open, and it's, it's, it's super hard to see if you drive the team into the right direction, so so your decisions become more uncertain, uh, uncertain and uncertain. I think this is also something that, that was very hard to learn and to understand and to gain the, confident, uh, the confidence that the decisions mostly are right and also to accept that I as a lead fail from time to time and just accept these, these failures. I think this this was also something that I really had to learn because leading is, is more complex and more uncertain than just writing code.
0: I, I totally agree. I think this is change of mindset around that I'm very eager to also explore this little bit more with you uh, for engineers who either have been given the opportunity to lead and they are also at the same crossroads thinking about, you know, how do I balance both or I go into leadership. And I think you mentioned something is you mentioned something very interesting is you need to get confident when you want to be a leading person who's leading people, what is your opinion and advice for engineers who are at that crossroads where they're transitioning from being a full-time person, you know, building stuff, uh, to someone leading people who build stuff. What would you advise them? who are at that crossroads in terms of helping them with this transition and also really building that confidence with leading people?
1: Yeah, I would say um, that they really should should stop coding and focus on learning leadership Um and this i think this, this this understanding is hard right because it sounds like leading okay this is something i kind of do but it's also something that you really have to, or can can learn right so this is like you, you can use a mentor or a coach and you can read about this you can try out things and just focusing on on the new thing and accepting there, that there is something something new that that you have to learn and um, like like you learn a new language like a new programming language right you have to go into this, go deeper into this. And I would also say, don't be afraid to focus 100% on the leadership because you can go back to coding. Um, this this was also the year that I had, but I, I realized that even after years of not coding, I still can be active in technical discussions. I still can drive my team sometimes to, to point to think about something different. So. I think if you were a full-time engineer at one point, you will never never lose this. And I think having this confidence was something that that I was missing. Um, and I try to support them and gain the confidence that just focusing on, on leading people does not mean that they completely lose their engineering knowledge that they have.
0: Mm, that makes a lot of sense, absolutely. Uh, in your experience, Martin, uh, when did you see for yourself that leadership is your path uh, as a full-time role? And as you said, after five years, you did not feel bad about not coding. Um, and I would say I'll turn it into this point about when you felt more confident as a leader, at what point in time? And share us a little bit about that event or scenario where it happened.
1: Mm-hmm. It's a good question. <laughs> um, several occasions, I would say. So, so so as I said, the first team that I took over was was a very strong team. So the team was not not even led by, by an engineering manager for for some time. Um, was said to be be a very hard team. So even some experienced engineering managers said said to me, um, they would be careful taking over this team. So I was just jumping into the chalk bay. Um, and I can tell you that I had so many sleepless nights and uh, thinking about do I do the right thing? Do I do the wrong thing? Um, and but when when I left the company, some of the people um, were really sad about this. So I saw that they really liked me, that they really accepted me um, um, as a lead. And this was one of the first times where I thought, hey, maybe I don't do a bad job at all. So so maybe I. I I kind of can do this. So, so maybe I can can build people and build the trust and work together with them. This this was actually one, one of the situations. And I also once had, had to reset a team because it really didn't work. And it also gave me sleepless nights and thought, how what can I do with the team? And I tried to work with the team. Um, and then I kind of really made this decision, um, set up the new team and created together with the team something, something very very nice, a super healthy, mature team after some years. Um, it just also gave me, gave me the confidence um, that, that I kind of, uh, kind of leading people something that, that I want. So this it's not that long ago that I came to this. So I always liked this. I always always had fun in leading people. But the confidence that, that I may be good in this um, didn't develop. Or they, they, they developed lately, I would say. So that's in the last two years, kind of.
0: Hmm. And I think that obviously becomes a very uh, interesting moment in your life where you realize that this is not an alien thing. This is not something that you cannot see an outcome or you cannot measure an outcome. You cannot run a test and see everything works. But there's a way to know that you have been I would say successful in some sense, in that leadership moment where you were part of. Uh, I'm quite interested to see, like when you said you, in the instances that you shared, you really found out or you realized that you know you were impactful and really provided the leadership that the team needed. How do you see measuring the impact of leadership today? Uh, maybe in your current teams or the teams that you have worked with in past, how do you as a leader really figure out that this is the impact that you are creating as a leader and to measure, orient, and perhaps adapt to over time?
1: Yeah, I think this this is a very interesting topic, right? Because usually when, when we talk about leadership and management, and um, often people think that managers are the people who, who kind of collect the KPIs and collect the numbers and, and make adjustments on these. And often leadership is perceived as something very free, fuzzy. Um, but, but as you said, right, it's super important to collect data about are you a good leader and not because, as you said, you cannot adapt to this. Um, and to do this, I mean, some companies... Or sometimes you're lucky that you're in a company um, that has already some service around. So, so very regularly your directors ask about their well-being and how they feel and maybe some leadership things. Then, then you are a lucky guy. And if not, then you definitely have to, de- to create this on your own. Um, or even if you want to dive deeper into, into the understanding. And so what, what I did is and um, so in so my current company we have um, a founding mindset so just like every company has right so it's like the, the the big picture and the values that the company stands for and together with my former hr coach i created some sort of survey of kind of 30 questions which challenged me against these these values this mindset um, and i sent this survey quarterly to my directs and then look into the data and i really really encourage my directs to take part in this because they don't vote and um, then i don't have insights and then i sit together with the team and, and discuss things that went wrong um or that that went good and then if, if there's something that we need to change then we kind of derive uh, derive some action items from this and this is Extremely helpful, this is amazingly helpful because I remember we had one quarter where where there were really bad values on the question if the team has strategic insights into what we do. So the team was kind of lacking the division that we did in the the department um, or in the team. And then we actually created action items, made some workshops. And after the next quarter, um, we saw that the numbers went up. And then there was was another issue um, in the follow-up quarter and the following quarter where they, I can't remember what it was, but it was, it was something else where the numbers dropped. And then we immediately took action and three months later, we saw that these numbers went up. And this really gave me confidence in, in collecting numbers and, and checking the team health um, and the leadership. So, so this, is, this is super important um, to, to steer the team into the right direction. And of course, um, to drive your leadership style into the right direction. Because people are different, right? So, so every team is different. You cannot apply the same pattern to, to every team. You always have to adapt to the team and therefore you need to understand them.
0: Yeah. No, I think I totally agree with that. I think this this data through surveys or feedback definitely provides you a view on what's going on. Um, I also know that uh, this data is not... Uh, the only thing that you should be looking, often it is overwhelmed by different uh, behaviors and conditions that are beyond the control of a leader. Um, and I think it's also very con- very uh, influenced by the prevailing situation, let's say, of an organization where maybe you are part of that organization but there are so many other moving parts where people may be unhappy about one thing but it reflects in the feedback uh, to to something completely different how do you have what is your experience around recognizing such biases in feedback about uh from le- about leadership about leaders themselves have you had experience where perhaps uh, you found that there is a bias and what potentially ways we could correct it?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about these 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 surveys and, and the questions and so on, I think what's very important is that you A, try to phrase them as detailed as possible, and then talk to the team about what they mean. So. Uh, we, we had recently the situation in the team that we, we had a survey and there's one question or one statement where they can vote yes, no, maybe. Um, on in the last quarter, I built and developed new skills. And in my team, the numbers dropped. So people said no. And then then I was thinking about what, what does this mean? And I started the conversation with the team. Um, and there is a lot of interpretation to this to this phrasing, right? So it could be like, I'm super frustrated because I get no support and no time to develop myself further, which is then something where where you need to take action. But it could also mean, and this was was in our case, and the people said, yes, I did not develop anything, but I don't care because there's a time where I learn and a time where I don't learn, and it's completely fine for me, but I just can't answer no here. And I think the important thing is that you start discussion with the team. So how did you understand this? Should we rephrase the question in the survey and so on? Um so it's like yeah, mostly everything what has to do with leadership is based on communication and also in this regards you should start the discussion to understand what the people think and what they mean with the question and um also make them make them understand um what, what you intended with the question.
0: Um Marin, if you are interested, I'm also quite eager to hear your opinions around um uh... Especially, I really like the idea about, you know, young leaders, leaders who are in the, you know, stage where they have, uh, or the crossroad junction that they call it, you know, trying to become a leader. And a lot of us have been in that situation, maybe four, five, six, you know, whatever number of years back. Um, One thing I observed from them also personally was leadership is essentially very lonely role you are part of a team and yet i think some of the leadership challenges uh can only be addressed by you in some places in some organizations in some scenarios how do you see loneliness as a leadership in the leadership context as leaders do you recognize those uh, do you recognize this or you feel that this is perhaps um, not that rampant as I in, as I'm <laughs> as I'm sharing with you.
1: Yeah, no, I think it is um, definitely, and there are often times where I feel super lonely um, because I mean, you as a leader, you you of course de- develop trust, right? So I mean, you have this in, in, intrinsic intent to be close to the team, to understand them, to develop them, to be close to the people. I think this is what, what makes a leader a leader. Um, but you also cannot get too close to them. Right? So, so they are your directs and you have this responsibility. You have this, this strange power that, that I sometimes just don't want to have. Um, but but we have this because of this disciplinary responsibility. Um, and that's why also you are part of the team and have to be close to the team and make jokes or whatever. You, you have to be careful that you don't cross the border um, between your directs and you and this at least makes me sometimes super silent. And I'm, I'm, I'm a person who really wants to be close to the team and, and talk to people and close to people basically, right? But this, the things that you say, they have much bigger impact to your directs than someone else maybe saying. And yeah, this, this definitely um, can create some sort of loneliness. And I think for, for younger leads, um, I think a good advice is find other young leads So so talk to people who have the same problems and the same challenges, who also maybe feel lonely. And this can kind of get you out of your loneliness. So when when I started, um, I also was in a lucky situation that that other young leads just started in these roles. Um, So we kind of set up regular meetings where we talked about our problems and our challenges. And and I mean, when you start with leadership and and then you have so many things that, that are challenging and so many confusing things and... Um, there is there is a manager who wants more things from you than before and the team that is challenging you and you're in the sandwich position. And that there are so many things that I think the best advice is find people who are in a, in a similar situation and to exchange with them. I think this can help you get out of this loneliness.
0: I cannot agree more with you. I think it's such a powerful way of describing it. I, I really liked how you framed it. So young leads find another lead, other leads who may be in the same boat. And often I think what has happened is in also my previous uh, organization, where I was also with Zalando for some time. I, the Good parts for me, the things that I really cherish was really connecting to people who were in the same boat as me um, as a leader and having to talk to them without judgment, without any apprehension on the challenges that I was facing and being transparent about it and learning from each other. um, I think that has worked really well. And I also totally agree with the point about, I think that's where mentoring really helps in because for me, sometimes when I was mentoring other people, I was trying to tell them, or I was telling them what I want to tell myself. (laughs) So it's almost like a form of meditation. Um, so if somebody comes to me with the problem, yes, I would not have solved the problem in the perfect way. And I often tell them, this is how I think about the problem. And this is what I would have done or I had done often. I'm getting an opportunity to really reflect myself and the way I was in that situation from different perspectives. One perspective is the truth. Like, oh, this is what I did. This is how I failed or I succeeded. This is what really happened. And the other way to look at it is what would I have done differently if I would have been in the same situation? And I think that's why I wanna bring back the topic of mentoring, right? As we are closing in to our one hour mark in this discussion, uh, your point about young leads finding on the leads, and mentoring others who potentially could be lead could become a fascinating way to deal with this loneliness, but also, I would say, a, to a sense of reflection and retrospective of your job as a leader.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think also the the, the mentoring part can can really set a punctual impact on people because sometimes. As I mean, you, you went through, through the things that they are going to, right? So this is like, they are unsecure as you were. And then maybe just the right sentence can really influence their career. So, so I remember that I had a conversation with someone and I said, I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm doing a good, good job, right? So I'm not sure if I'm, I'm a good lead because I permanently question myself. So I'm, I'm permanently thinking, do I do the wrong thing, uh, the right thing and the wrong thing? And... I'm really unsure about what I do. And then this person told me, from my experience, there is a big correlation between good leads and leads who question themselves. And this this sentence kind of stuck. Right, So this sentence helped me. There was an experienced person who, who knew this situation, talked to other people before, and then this helped me. So I think this, this is the power of mentoring when, when you go to people who kind of went through the things you are, are into, and um, then they really can influence you and drive you in the right direction and give you some some kind of tools or sentences that I now can use. Um, yeah, so, so there's a lot of power in this.
0: Absolutely. And as we are in the last part of our conversation today, uh, Martin, um, I want obviously don't want to end this call and our conversation today without asking for you. Um, we have spoken a little bit about this today, like you know, your advice for people uh, who are starting to mentor. You talked about listening a little bit. Uh, if you see yourself or if you have an opportunity to go back to the time where you were on the crossroads of your leadership career, um and you are meant you became and it's a hypothetical situation obviously you become the mentor for yourself at that time what would you have shared with that version of martin at that point in time to support them in their process of becoming confident in leadership
1: Mm -hmm. that that's a very good one um so tricky mind game um (laughs) I would say if I go back to the situation, I think one of the advices I would give myself is just trust in what I do. So trust that the gut feeling that you have will guide you into the right direction. Um, And this is also the advice that I would give everyone else because if you want to do leadership, or if you're convinced of the idea of leadership, then you are already on the right track because um, you you think about people. Um, And, I think this advice would have been super helpful to not challenge myself or question myself that hard. Um, so just the advice that whatever comes from your gut feelings cannot be that wrong. I would say this, this is the advice that the the older Martin would give the younger one.
0: Fantastic. I really like that. Uh, Martin has been such a joy uh, to talk to you. Um, I ask this question to everyone. I truly enjoy this particular question uh, before we end our call. In the recent months or years, has there been book books, maybe podcast, maybe article, blogs, whatever artifact that has influenced you and your thinking?
1: That's yeah, a good one because this is also an interview question that I usually ask. Um, so should be for it, but I'm not. Um, and yes, 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 definitely. Um, there is one book and a pop- oh, it's like, like, a, like an audio book, but it's also a printed book out there. Uh, I don't unfortunately know what the English version is, but um, I think the, the author is called Barbara Shear. Um, and she's writing about so-called scanner personalities. So these are multi-talented persons or, or people. Um, that, that's super interesting because I now started to look deeper into different personalities um, also to to write about this because people are so different there's so many personalities and characteristics out there um, this is something that that really really interests me at the moment and this book in particular really really influenced me because there's just just a limited personality so it's is like um, so this multi-talented person who kind of interested in a lot of things and a lot of capabilities and build them up and also suffer from this but even just looking to this very limited scope, you can go really deep. Um, it just, just showed me that people are so complex, so 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 diverse. I'm already super happy in diving into on uh, in diving into other books about personalities. Yeah, this is something that that influences me at the moment very much.
0: So the author is Barbara Sher. Yeah,
1: right? I think that's correct. Yeah.
0: Okay, I will definitely put some notes in our show description. Um, with that, I think we are right at the end of our conversation, Martin. Uh, thank you so much for also going over time. Uh, this is 9.30 in Berlin and uh, in the evening. And I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and obviously share such wisdom with not just me, but the listeners of this podcast. So I really appreciate you to do that. And I hope we can connect at some point in time in the future to really go deep into other aspects where which interest us uh, as, as leaders.
1: Definitely. Happy to do this. And I really enjoyed this conversation. So it was super nice to talk to you again. Um, and then, yeah, definitely, if there's another topic, just jump on it.
0: All right. Please subscribe to the podcast In Your Shoes on the podcast channel, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, PocketCast and others. To know more, please visit www.inyourshoes.com. That is I-N-U-R-shoes.com.